Please be seated. Exodus chapter 11. Our journey through the scriptures on Sunday night. And since we've been away from it for a number of weeks here, just by way of review, we find ourselves now at the kind of the tail end of a series of ten plagues that God is uh, pouring out upon the nation of Egypt. He's already poured out nine of the ten plagues, the plague of turning the Nile uh, into blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the disease upon the livestock, the boils on man and beast, the hail, the fire, the locusts, and the darkness. And in each one of these uh, uh, judgments and plagues that God has brought upon the nation uh, of Egypt, uh, the first six times we're told that as God is trying to secure the release of his people from Egypt, that Pharaoh, in the light of God's judgment, he would harden his heart against God, against God's uh, requests and demands of him, until finally after that particular point in time, uh, we find ourselves now here where God is actively hardening uh, 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 Pharaoh's heart. These plagues that God is bringing against Egypt, it's not just some haphazard kind of a collection of plagues and judgments that he's bringing against uh, the nation of Egypt there. There's very, very specific purposes behind them. First of all, he is pouring these plagues out on Egypt, number one, to secure the release of his people, his firstborn son, so to speak, uh, Israel, uh, from the bondage of Egypt. And so, in doing it this way, through the plagues, he's revealing his great strength and his great power uh, to the children of Israel. Remember, it's been about 430 years, 400 years, 430 years since they've, uh, though they've been in, in Egypt and all, they lack an intimate relationship with God. They know about God. They know that their uh, patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had a relationship with God and, and, uh, uh, and had promises given uh, to them by God. But in terms of them really knowing who Yahweh is and, and His power and all, they don't know that. And so God is developing, even as He's securing their release through these judgments, He is developing a relationship with them, a knowledge in them of the greatness of His power. The second purpose behind these plagues was to judge Egypt and to right, righteously, rightfully, uh, judge them for their uh, cruelty toward God's people, um, their uh, abuse of God's people, and uh, even a murderous abuse. The nation of Egypt had gone all the way to the point of uh, murdering the Jews that they did not want to live, the firstborn sons that they considered to be a threat uh, to them and, and all of this. God brought the children of Israel into Egypt that they might become a nation there. And then he would take them from Egypt into the promised land and continue his promises through them. He did not bring his children into Egypt in order that they might be made slaves there and abused by uh, the Egyptians and used as slave labor to then do, uh, to enrich uh, the, the nation itself. And, and so he's going to judge them 
for having kind of come against his purposes for their being in Egypt. The third reason for uh, the, the judgment was in order that Egypt itself would come to know uh, Yahweh as the Lord, to know uh, the God of the Bible as the Lord. And one of the ways that he is doing that is he is in each one of these plagues that he is pouring out, he is actually judging the false gods and the idols of Egypt. Every one of they had gods of flies, they had the gods of the lice and the gods of the weather and, and the gods of the water and all these gods, false gods that they were worshiping. And when God worked through Moses and he comes in and judges the nation of Egypt and e Egypt's uh, false gods are unable to do anything in the face of the power of God. God is communicating to Egypt that you're wasting your time worshiping these, these gods and these goddesses. There's a greater God to be worshipped, and that is the God uh, of the Jews. And so he is trying to get them to turn uh, from their idolatry by judging uh, all of the gods of Egypt. And so in essence, in, in these ten plagues that are being poured out, God has uh, declared war on the false gods of, of Egypt. And so we're told later in Numbers, for the Egyptians were bearing uh, all of their firstborn whom the Lord had killed among them. Also on their gods he had uh, executed judgments. And so here is Egypt hopelessly at this point in time engaged in idolatry it was going to take something major on God's part to kind of jar them out of the folly of of their idolatry and begin to worship the Creator uh, rather than the creation the Creator who is blessed forevermore and so uh, the only alternative to kind of wrecking their society and bringing judgment and hardship on them in order to wake them up uh, would be God to just leave them in in their idolatry, leave them uh, in their sin to miss you know the true and the living God and miss heaven for eternity and so he is trying to get through to the people of Egypt at the same time now is when we come here to chapter eleven and we come now to the final plague the ten uh, of uh, uh, the tenth of the ten plagues that God is pouring out now to secure the release of the children of, of Israel. This tenth plague is a very, very severe one, but it's necessary in order that, that God might be able to secure the release of, of, his, uh, of his children. So here's the land of Egypt just devastated, I mean, physically, economically, in every way by these plagues. Still no repentance. Still no repentance. Still no brokenness. On the part of Pharaoh, no willingness to release the children of Israel. And so God speaks to Moses and says, I'm going to pour out one more plague that will not only cause them to release my children, the children of Israel, from Egypt, but they will urge them to leave this land of bondage. God doesn't delight in any of these plagues, but he'll do what he has to, to gain the release of his children from Egypt because he had promised that he would. And he had promised that he would on a particular timetable. And he is going to always keep his word. Pharaoh finds himself and Egypt find themselves on the wrong side of God's word and his promises. And I never want to find myself 
on the wrong side of his promises because he keeps them all. I want to be on the right side of all those good promises, but not in a thing where I look and say, all right, I'm going to, be, I'm going to get caught between God keeping his promises and, and in a place of resisting them. And that's where Egypt finds themselves. Chapter 11, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after this he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. I'm going to pour out one more plague on the land, and there's not going to be any more. You can go out with the men, but not the children. You can go out with the men and the children, but not the livestock. You can go out. No more changing minds. No more anything. This plague is going to do it. And uh, he's not only going to let you guys loose, he is going to urge you, he's going to drive you uh, out of the land of Egypt uh, altogether. Now, up to, up to this point in time, we know, because it, we've read the Bible a little bit, we know there's ten plagues. Um, Moses did not know how many plagues there were going to be in all. He just knows he's at number nine. He does know, interestingly enough, from Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, he does know that God is going to pour out a plague on Egypt that is going to result in the death of their firstborn. He said in, in Exodus chapter 4, by way of reminder, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put into your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And so I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. And so Moses knew that it was headed here. He just didn't know whether there might be five or ten more plagues before we got to this particular one. Then God instructs Moses to speak now in the hearing of the people, the children of Israel, and let them ask... I think in the old King James it says borrow. It's not borrowing. Uh, that would look like, hey, can I borrow your lawnmower? Bye. You know, can I borrow your diamond necklace? Bye. That's not what he's going. But every man asks from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor, the Egyptian neighbors, articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people and so Moses is now instructed to tell the children of Israel listen don't before you leave Egypt go to your neighbors and ask them you know for articles of silver and articles of gold and why would, and, and the children of Israel were uh, I mean the children of Egypt were very glad to give uh, give that uh, to them and the reason that God does this has the children of Israel ask for that uh, is because it's just back payment for hundreds of years of slavery, free slave labor that they had in using the children of Israel. It was unrighteous, unjust in the eyes uh, of God and all. So back wages for all those long years of bondage and slavery, a transfer of some of the wealth. The Egyptians had become very wealthy on the backs of this uh, two or three million uh, person uh, slave thing that they had going on through the Jews and now God was going to supernaturally cause uh, much of that wealth to come back 
uh, to them. All of this again was as God had promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And so the children of Israel did. The Egyptians gave them great wealth. Uh, before they left, uh, number one, because God gave them favor, gave the children of Israel favor for that, and then number two, their great respect for Moses. Uh, they, they realized this guy's the real deal, and he's a servant of a very, very big God, and uh, so they gave out of a, a respect uh, for Moses and, and all of that. Interesting that uh, one of the reasons that God takes that and does this kind of transfer of wealth is not just so that uh, they could be, you know, have the nicest jewelry in Canaan or anything like that. God's going to take that wealth and from that wealth He is going to uh, build the tabernacle. He's going to build the articles, the furnishings for the tabernacle, uh, all of the articles and the furnishings for the priesthood and all. These things are going to go back into uh, the worship uh, of uh, of the Lord. And then in verse 4, Moses said, Thus says the Lord, and he speaks this now, Uh, to Pharaoh. He is uh, receiving this revelation from God. He hasn't quite left the presence of Pharaoh yet. And he said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is, is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. And so firstborn of the animals, firstborn of the Egyptians, whether it's the highest person in the land uh, to, to the, the person that has the lowest position in the land. No Egyptian was going to escape this plague. And, and for the first time, Pharaoh is going to be personally touched by by these plagues. He doesn't have the power to protect himself uh, any anymore. Now, this judgment upon the firstborn of, of the animals, it would seem to be a judgment not only for their failure uh, to, not, uh, to, to release the children of Israel, but also their failure to release what the children of Israel owned, and that is their animals. They tried to let the children of Israel go, uh, but they wanted to keep their their animals. Now this great plague that God was going to bring in, notice in verse 6, is going to produce a great, great cry of of lamentation in Egypt uh, such as it never happened or will happen before in their history. And then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as was not like it before nor shall be again. And so in this, their great loud uh, cry uh, for the loss of their, their firstborn, and in that cry, God's just given them a taste of their own medicine. He's just given them a taste of their own medicine to experience a little bit of what they had done to the children of Israel for long decades and even hundreds of years. They had so reduced in, in the slavery and all, so reduced the Jews down to a place where every single day they're crying out to God because of the bondage uh, that they were in. And a bondage that included an abuse that included the systemized uh, 
kind of state-run, organized uh, death of the firstborn of, uh, uh, of all uh, Hebrew infant boys that were being born to the children of Israel. They had dished this out for a long time. It wasn't just Pharaoh. This, this was a, like, anything like that kind of a thing. What Pharaoh had done, it wasn't just Pharaoh saying, let's kill all of the, of the Jewish uh, baby boys. Uh, the only way he could get away with that is that he had a population that was either willing to be engaged in that or to turn a blind eye to that. Remember when Moses' parents... Moses reached that age, I think it was about three months or so, and, and all, and they were concerned now that the child would be discovered and, uh, and then reported and then be killed. They weren't concerned that Pharaoh was going to discover that they had the child. They had no more access to Pharaoh than the man in the moon. But the population was so engaged in, in the decree of Pharaoh and in agreement with it for financial gain, to hold on to their power so they wouldn't have a threat of a foreign army in, inside of, of their borders in case they, they were attacked from, from without and, and all. And, and so they've dished this out for a long time on the children of, of Israel. And it's really a, a, a very uh, interesting and equal kind of judgment to bring this plague on them. Now, the, uh, the plague wasn't just... Uh, a, 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 again, a random kind of plague. Uh, the uh, Egyptians worshipped various gods and goddesses who they viewed to be protectors of, of children. And, and this kind of thing was their responsibility to do that. And so this plague would also expose them as being completely in, incompetent to do what the Egyptians had uh, trusted these gods and goddesses uh, for. And so... There is the Moses of, uh, warning of Moses now of God's judgment hanging over uh, the firstborn. Again, as I quoted from Exodus chapter 4 earlier, uh, God had uh, told Moses about this uh, long before he knew it was coming. Uh, 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 Pharaoh knew that it was, uh, was coming. They, they had been warned. Now, a little lesson here before we move further uh, from this. When God rises up to kill the oldest sons of the families of Egypt, His judgment is three things. It is righteous, it is measured, even though it seems like it may not be measured, it is very measured, it is very conservative, and number three, it is necessary. It is righteous because He had to put a stop to the unrighteous killing and mistreatment of his firstborn, the Jews. He has come nine times very politely to, to Pharaoh and all, asked before each one of the plagues that they would release his, his children from their bondage. And he only begins the plagues because of their refusal. And he escalates the severity of the plagues only to the degree that they have dug in and refused to meet his, his demands. And so he runs through a series of nine plagues as a warning before he ever rises up now to touch their children. God was not and he could not allow them to go on indefinitely abusing and killing the children of Israel. 
just because of their materialism, because of their pride, because of their greed and, and all of these kinds of things. And so this plague was a righteous judgment against Egypt's murder of the Hebrew baby boys as is detailed in, in chapters 1 and 2 of the book. So yes, Pharaoh had given a decree for them to be thrown in, into the river, but as uh, into the Nile River and drown those baby boys, but uh, also that he could never have gotten away with it except that he had the population gladly engaged in it. His, his judgment was not only righteous, but it was measured. It, as, as harsh as the judgment seems, and it's a very, very harsh judgment, very, very severe judgment, but as severe as the judgment was, the Lord would have been righteous in wiping them all out. Wiping them all out. Every single one of them in the land of, of Egypt. And he only does what he had to do in order to get their attention, in order to gain their obedience in releasing the children of Israel. And even when Pharaoh and his uh, servants and the people end up releasing uh, the children of Israel from the land, it isn't long till they change their mind again and try to take them back into bondage again. So God is escalating uh, against uh, the wickedness of, of Egypt, but it was very, very measured. He would have been righteous in doing far worse to them. Number three, it was necessary. And uh, even through the nine plagues, uh, Egypt has no intention of releasing uh, the children of, of Israel. And the stakes uh, concerning this are, are, are far greater than just the continued physical abuse uh, of of the children of, of Israel or even the uh, moral injustice of what the Egyptians were doing to the children of Israel. What they are doing in failing to release the children of Israel from the bondage is they're now hindering, they're opposing, they're even jeopardizing at this particular point in time God's eternal plan of salvation for the entire world through the Jews. They're threatening that. And, and, and the far-reaching consequences uh, surrounding the release or the continued bondage of the children of Israel all those years ago, that reaches all the way into this room tonight. There, they were hindering God's plan to bring a Savior into the world from among the Jews. If the Egyptians had had their way, there would be no Jews in Canaan. They would have never gotten there. They would have never had the freedom to grow in a relationship with God. They would have never been able to, uh, to produce the Messiah in the way that God had planted the Savior of the world, Jesus and all. God wants these people in Canaan. He's going to bring a Savior into the world through these people in Canaan. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be raised in Nazareth. He's going to die on a cross in Calvary in Jerusalem. He's going to raise from the dead in Jerusalem. And they're just thinking about money and slavery and what's the stock market doing and how good is the currency and what public work project and dam and, and roads are we going to build through these people. And they're just thinking like this. And God knows the eternal destiny of mankind is at stake. So he steps in. He steps in. And he steps in strongly in order to 
because of their attitude toward him. He's asked and asked and asked, but now he's going to pry the children of Israel right out of their hands. He is going to get them out because he has promised to do that. I don't minimize the, the greatness of, of this plague that we're going to look at here in just a moment. But I'll tell you, if you put it up against the potential loss of God's plan of salvation for mankind, the, the loss in Egypt is a comparatively small thing. What would I do here tonight? If you came to me and you said, listen, Damien, would you rather the Egyptians not face the fierceness of of this tenth plague and, and continue to keep the children of Israel in bondage if it meant that your wife could not know Jesus as her Savior, if it meant that your children would have no forgiveness for their sins, no break of the power of sin in their lives, no hope or confidence of, of heaven. Would it be worth it to you that they could just continue to do their injustice if that was the consequences that the rest of the world would bear? No hope, no life, no salvation, no redemption, no forgiveness of sins, no confidence of heaven. Take all of it out of, of all that is found in Christ. Take it out of the whole world. Take it out of human history so that they can continue to keep the children of Israel in bondage. Now, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. God's going to get them out, and, and He needs uh, to get them out. It's interesting that if you think that God is just knows how to play, uh, you know, pretty strong with Gentiles, with the Egyptians, later on in the history of the Jews, when they fall into, well, they're not going to fall into idolatry, when they choose to engage in idolatry, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, when they start to engage in sin and idolatry that was even greater than the sin and the idolatry that the surrounding pagan nations around them were engaged in, they were out paganing the pagans as God's people. God stepped in among His own people and allowed them to be conquered, I mean, in a very, very brutal way, by first the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians, in order to salvage His plan of salvation through those people. That's the big picture. Eternity is a very long time. And God said He's going to bring a Savior into the world all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The first prophecy, come from the seed of a woman. And that's exactly what he's going to do. And nobody should ever try and get in the middle of that and try and jeopardize that plan. And that's what Egypt was doing. But against, verse 7, uh, but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue on this night of judgment against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. In contrast to these loud cries and the, the lamentation uh, of the Egyptians there in Goshen where the children of Israel were, complete silence. You wouldn't even hear a growl or a, the bark uh, of, of a dog. And, and the reason, in order that Pharaoh might know 
that there is a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. God was making that difference. And all these, your servants shall come down to me, bow down to me, Moses tells Pharaoh, saying, Get out and all of the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. So he tells Pharaoh, this is the judgment that's coming. He tells his servants and uh, his counselors, this is coming, and uh, I don't care what you think in your mind right now and all, but right around the corner, you're gonna, you are going to beg for us to get, uh, get out of here. This is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We are getting out with this plague. And then Moses then went out from uh, Pharaoh's presence in great anger. And I think that he's upset that, that Pharaoh and the counselors in Egypt has forced God into this particular kind of, of a place to doing these things. He's very upset with, with all of this. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I mean, you think you've said it, and it could be as clear as anyone. You'd think any reasonable person would accept that. And, uh, and the warning, I mean, here you've got nine plagues. Everything you've said, Moses, boom, 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 boom. You're nine for nine, and Pharaoh is zero oh for nine. You'd think, you'd think he'd get something. He's not going to get it. He's, he's not, he is not going to accept what it is that you're saying. He won't heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And so Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened uh, Pharaoh's uh, heart. And again, you see, Pharaoh will not heed you, verse 9. It's his responsibility, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God's sovereignty, all of it mixed together there. And he did not let the children of Israel uh, 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 go out of his land. And so uh, we make it now to chapter uh, 12. Miracles are for today. Now, in, in this chapter, chapter 12, one of the most important chapters in the entire uh, Old Testament, because in it we have the Lord's institution of uh, the Passover, uh, in which he, he communicates uh, two great things. Number one, the need for man's salvation, the need that man has for deliverance. And then number two, God's provision for our salvation or our deliverance. And the key to this whole section having to do with the children of Israel's redemption, God's buying them out of the bondage in, uh, uh, of slavery in, in Egypt, the whole key to that is the Lamb. The Lamb, the Lamb, a Lamb, the Lamb, your Lamb, uh, repeated over and over again uh, in the passage. And this Passover Lamb that uh, we're going to be looking at in just a moment, it's all a type of Jesus. It's all a shadow of Jesus. Jesus said to religious leaders of his day, you do search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. The entirety of the Old Testament is a picture of him. It points to him. And there are some sections of the, of the Old Testament where it's very obvious how it points to him, and then there's other sections where it's not as obvious, and that's why it's going to be fun to figure some of those things out uh, in heaven we got, when we've got a brain to do, uh, you know, that's worthy of the Word of God to do that. But this lamb that he's going to be describing here that's going to cause them to be uh, spared the judgment that's coming upon Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. There is a judgment, the Bible says, a righteous judgment that is going to come upon this earth. This world is a stubborn, 
in its sin. It is as careless and disregarding of the, the warnings of God. Uh, the defiance against what God has said He's going to do in human history and how He's going to bring human history to an end. It's all as big and as stupid and as ugly as it ever was in Pharaoh uh, in, in, all those years ago. So all that's going on. And, uh, and so it's a picture of as, Jesus, as, as the Lord delivers the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt on the basis of a lamb, it's all a picture of how God has chosen to deliver us out of the greater bondage of sin in this world on the basis of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that is Jesus Himself. So the, Jesus is the Lamb who's come into the world in order to do that, deliver us from that bondage of, of sin. Uh, speaking of Jesus in the context of, of a lamb, and clearly tying back to Exodus chapter 12 here, remember John the Baptist said to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who doesn't take us out of the bondage of Egypt. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul wrote, and he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, For indeed Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us, referring to him as the, as, the, as the Passover lamb. The apostle Peter wrote and said, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. And so all of this is a picture of uh, Jesus. And so he institutes the Passover, this Old Testament picture of Jesus. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year to you. So now here they are, they're in Egypt, and they're about, God's about to institute the Passover, and God says, All right. Forget Egyptian time. Forget anybody else's time. I'm going to give you a new religious calendar. And, and for your calendar, for you as a people, I want you to mark your calendar by this particular event. My redeeming you out of the bondage of Egypt by way of, of the, the, the Passover and the sacrifice of, of the Lamb. And so the miracle of the Passover is going to represent a new beginning in their history. And God says, I want your calendar to be tied to that, that new beginning in, in your life. In other words, it was always to be remembered as the single greatest event in, in, in their history in the Old Testament. And, and so the Jews, even today, they have a religious calendar, they have a civil calendar, and the Passover marks the beginning of their religious year, which has just happened this last week in, in Israel. The picture that it is uh, for us is even as we remember the day that we were born again, redeemed from the bondage of sin and, and the bondage of this world. That was the most important event in our human history. It is the most uh, important uh, uh, event or day in our, in our lives when the Lord gave us a new start and a fresh start in our history. And everything gets dated from that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So he gives them now in verse 3 some instruction to the children of Israel regarding the sacrifice of the Lamb. He said, speak to the congregation of Israel saying, on the tenth of this month, the tenth day, every man, everybody needs to be saved, all have sinned that come short of the glory of God. On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself, notice, a Lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. So every man was to take a lamb, take it for uh, the household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, there weren't enough people to, to eat the lamb uh, after it had been sacrificed and, and had been roasted and all, then he could join together with his neighbors and uh, maybe two or three small families. They could join together according to the number of persons, according to each man's need. You shall take your count uh, for the lamb. And so if a household was too small to eat an entire lamb uh, on its own, then they were able to join with another. In other words, no one was excluded. No one was excluded from... Uh, from uh, being able to partake of this lamb and to partake of the salvation found uh, in it. Now notice in verse 5 the requirements of the lamb or the goat. You, uh, he said, your lamb shall be without blemish. And you notice in verse 3 it talks about a lamb. Verse 4, the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb. That progression. The New Testament talks about Jesus as a Savior, the Savior, and your Savior. That's always got to be the progression. Not enough just to be a Savior. Not even enough for me to know that He is the Savior. I must make Him my Savior in, in my life. And so too with, with the Lamb. He said, your Lamb shall be without blemish. Just as Jesus was uh, uh, without blemish. He was without sin. That's why he had to come. Sometimes people will say, Jesus died on the cross and he bore the death that we should have borne. Well, we could have died on the cross for our own sins and it wouldn't have done any good for us because we would have been an unacceptable sacrifice for our own sin because we, were, we are not without blemish. We are not without uh, sin. And thus, we're in the need of a, of a Savior. Jesus needed no Savior. And, and so he, in, in all of human history, the perfect God-man, had a, lived a perfect sinless life and uh, was able to die for us without blemish. You remember when Jesus asked the religious leaders, he said, which of you convicts me of sin? And they couldn't, they couldn't break that silence of, that followed in that, that question. He was a spot. He was a lamb without spot and, and without blemish. Notice not only to be uh, without blemish, but also a male of the first year. That lamb was to be killed in its prime. Jesus was killed in his prime for our sins. Thirty-three and a half years old when he died on that cross. It's kind of weird, you know, when you're younger and all. Number one, when you're really young, that seems kind of older. And then you get a little older, and that seems super young. seems really young to me. Jesus died at 33 years of age on that cross for our sins. Right there in, in his uh, very prime of, of his life crucified for us. And so a male of the first year and you shall take it from the sheep 
or from the goats. And now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So you take that lamb and you get it out from the rest of the flock, kind of put it over here by, yourself, uh, by itself on the 10th day, but you don't sacrifice it till the 14th day. And why do you wait four days for that to happen? I think two reasons. Number one, to have four days for the purpose of examination, making sure that it, as you see it morning, noon, and night, that it is truly without spot and without blemish. And I think the other thing is for four days of you coming in inside of your house and outside, inside, outside, inside, outside, as often as you would do that. I don't know how many times you do that in your house in the course of four days. And every time you do that, you look over at that lamb. You realize that life is, and that blood is going to be shed uh, for my sin. It was a, when Jesus hung on the cross... When, when they beat his face with their fists in those trials, and when they lashed him with those lashes and they drove those nails through his, his hands and through his, his feet and all, he, the pain he felt was exactly the pain you would have felt. It, he, he did not endure that in his deity. He didn't have some kind of a superhero wrap that he put on or something like that. Every single thing, every bit of that hurt him as much as it would have hurt you or me to endure uh, those, those very same things. And to just look and to realize that, that, that that's a real, living, live thing that is going to die for my sins. That was a real, living, live person, the Son of God, who died horrible death for me on the cross for the forgiveness of, of my sins and your sins too. And so the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses uh, where they eat it. And uh, so they were to take that, the sacrifice made, the blood was from the sacrifice was probably to go in, into a basin. They were to take with a piece of hyssop, as we'll see in a moment, uh, dip that kind of brush, uh, brushy plant into the blood, and they would, they would uh, uh, hit, hit the top of the, the doorway and then both sides of the doorway in the, the sign of a cross. It's all a picture of Jesus who was to come. Very interesting, no blood was to be applied to the floor to finish the, the full symbolism of the cross because it was a picture of the blood that Jesus would shed upon the cross and that blood is never to be trodden under the foot of man. It is the crime of the universe for one single person to trample that blood, that sacrifice of Jesus under their feet on the way to hell. It is a terrible thing for a person to know that that sacrifice was made for me, for me to reject it, and then for me to treat that blood and that sacrifice as an unclean thing. And so it wasn't applied to, uh, to the, to the uh, uh, floor there in, in, in all of that. In the same way, it wasn't enough for uh, the sacrifice. The lamb was, was commanded that the lamb would be killed, would be slain. 
wasn't enough. Isn't it enough just to know that Jesus died for my sins? That blood then needed to be applied in the way that God determined that it was to, to be applied. They needed to apply the blood in the same way Jesus is sacrificed. And the blood represents the life in, in, in the Bible. Jesus' sacrifice for our sins does no good if it's not coupled with our personal decision to apply it to our lives by faith. That's the only protection from the destroyer, the judge, judgment that is going to come uh, upon my sin. It's not enough to view him as a great teacher, as a great miracle worker, as a great uh, model of, uh, and, and the greatest man in human history and all of those things. I must put my faith in him as my Savior and, and as my Lord. His sacrifice must be applied to my life so that, by faith, so that when God looks at me, he sees the blood of Jesus on my life. He sees the life and the sacrifice of Jesus that I have willfully, purposely applied that uh, to my life for salvation. John wrote and he said is in, first, in, in John chapter, John's Gospel chapter 1 verse 12, but as, uh, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Now... One of the things that fascinates me here, may not fascinate you, um, but sorry about that. Uh, it might fascinate one or two of you. Send me a letter saying, I was fascinated, like you were fascinated with that. He gives them a way of salvation for the judgment to pass over from them. God communicates it to them. The interesting thing to me in, in all of that is they, they did not need to understand all the implications of that way of salvation. They didn't need to understand why it would work. They didn't need to understand why it pleased uh, God. They didn't need to understand that it was an Old Testament type and picture of the Messiah who was to come that never entered into their minds. All they needed to know is that God says this is the way to be saved from the judgment that I am going to pour out on Egypt. And so make sure you find yourself on the right side of this salvation. And sometimes, I don't know about you, and, uh, 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 and when you came to know the Lord, how uh, well-versed you were theologically, how much you weighed things out before, you know, and I'm not talking about a, making a commitment to the Lord and being willing to be fully committed to Him, but probably most of us gave our lives to the, uh, to the Lord and made Jesus our Savior, and we didn't know hardly anything about the implications of the cross. We knew He died on the cross for our sins. We knew He did it because He loved us, but we didn't know that that was maybe the only way that he could be both, that God could remain both just and the justifier of sinful man. We didn't understand all of the things about his incarnation, the perfect God man, that only he could be sacrificed to provide. We didn't understand how it was that he was exactly, you know, the type of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament and all of those things. All we knew 
for most of us is that God has said, this is your need, this is the Savior and the salvation that pleases me, and make sure that you give your life to Him. And then we give our life to Him, and then we start to explore all of the wisdom and all of the beauty and all of the height and the depth uh, behind the Savior, all of the types. We'll spend all of eternity searching out those things. But you know, a person doesn't have to understand everything. All we need to understand to make Jesus our Savior and to make Him our Lord is to know that that is the Savior that pleases heaven and pleases God. And that is the salvation, the way of saving sinful man that pleases um, God and, and pleases uh, heaven. It was interesting, we were in uh, Israel uh, recently here, obviously. <laughs> so, um, but uh, we, we got to the, um, the garden tomb, and uh, it's always the highlight to me of the whole uh, tour of, uh, of Israel. They're all, I mean, everywhere you go is just fabulous. But when you sit there in that place and you realize that within eyeshot, you, you can see... The, where the three greatest events in human history occurred, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead occurred. And that there, that is where God provided good news, the gospel, for the world. And apart from that death, burial, and resurrection, there is no good news in this world. And, and, and so we always pay, partake of communion in that place. And, and I asked before we partook of, of the bread that symbolized Jesus' body. And I just asked the group, you know, what is it that, you know, what do you think of when you, uh, you know, when you partake of communion, when you take of the bread? What, what impacts you the most? And I shared what impacts me the most, most often, and, and all and people began to share in the different things. And then one man said, and I thought it was very, very interesting, Every, what everybody shared was fabulous. And, but but he, he shared that as he partakes of communion, he thinks about, I hope I get this right, um, but, but he, he said he thinks about how simply God solved a complex problem, the problem of sin. How, how simple God has made it, the way of salvation for us in his Son. And that's, that's all they needed to do. They didn't need to understand all the types and the depth and all of the angles and different things. They just needed to know this please God and, and, that they, and then to obey that. If you're here tonight and you are not saved, I, I don't have any problem with a person getting a Bible. We will give you a free Bible tonight for that purpose of searching out what does the Scripture say and all of that. And I believe in a reasonable faith and all those different kinds of things. But you don't have to wait till that point to make Jesus your Savior. Make Him your Savior, your Savior tonight and then start to grow into those things as, as you continue to grow in your relationship uh, with Him. And so here's the blood. It was to be applied, applied there in the shape uh, of the cross, which takes us, of course, right to Calvary. And then they shall eat the flesh uh, on that night Roasted within fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. And so they were to then to eat the roasted meat of the animal that night. The roasting of that lamb symbolized the sufferings that Jesus bore, all of the wrath of God that was due our sin, that he and our sin deserved, that he bore on that on that cross and then they would need to eat the lamb in order 
to have strength for the journey after the Passover. It needs to internalize that, that lamb in order for strength. For us, Jesus has come into our lives uh, in the person of the Holy Spirit and that we might become partakers of the divine uh, nature. Notice it was also to be eaten with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs and the bitter herbs uh, would remind them of how bitter and how miserable their bondage was in Egypt so that they would never ever forget about how bad Egypt was, how bad the former life was. It was not, as we go on to verse 9, not to be eaten raw. The lamb was not to be boiled at all with water. It was to be roasted in fire, its head and its uh, legs and its entrails, uh, all of that. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Whatever could be eaten, um, uh, could not be eaten that night, was not to be left to the, the next day. No MLTs, no mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches the next day and, and all. And, and so the flesh of the sacrifice, the reason that it was to be completely burned, is the flesh of that sacrifice was not to see corruption. It was not to see corruption, even as Jesus' body did not see corruption following his, his death, but he was resurrected nor shall you allow your Holy One, David wrote, to see corruption. And you shall thus, verse 11, and thus you shall eat it with a belt uh, on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and so you shall eat it in haste. They were to eat it with, a, with their, wearing their robe, their sandals on their feet, the staff in their hands, and the reason was so they could eat it in, 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 in haste. Uh, so that they could leave Egypt on a moment's notice. And it's the same picture for us after we've been born again and we've uh, partaken of the sacrifice now, being ready to leave this Egypt of this world uh, in haste. And so uh, we're told at the end of verse 11, it is the Lord's Passover. And so that's the name of it. And he explains why it's called the Passover now in verse 12. For, which ties us back to the early, earlier verse, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And then here it is, underline it. Put exclamation points around it. Use a colored marker on it. And when I see, not just blood, when I see, God says, the blood that he has prescribed for, for their, uh, their deliverance from, from Egypt, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where Passover comes from. The judgment will pass over them, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so when God looks at us uh, in, in this new covenant in Jesus, when He looks at us, He needs to see the blood of Jesus covering our lives, His life, His sacrifice covering us as we have received Him as our Savior and our Lord. And now when He sees my life because of my faith in Jesus, He sees the blood, He sees the sacrifice. And the righteous judgment and wrath of God that my sin deserves, it passes over me. 
Not because I'm worthy of it, but because of the greatness of the sacrifice, because of the salvation that God has, has provided. And, and so this is, the, this is the, again, the Savior, the salvation that pleases God, and then, and then that judgment will, will pass over us. And so this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout all generations you shall keep it as a feast, as an everlasting uh, ordinance. And so uh, they were to keep this feast forever and ever. Uh, Jesus has fulfilled the Passover feast for us as Christians. Every day is a celebration. Every day of the year of His deliverance of us from the bondage of sin, the bondage of this world. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off, disfellowshipped from Israel. And on the first day there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on those days except for food preparation and so you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt and therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance on the first month on the fourteenth day of the month at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening for seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses since whoever eats what is leavened that same person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel whether he is a stranger or a native of the land you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings uh, you shall eat unleavened bread and so God establishes the feast of unleavened uh, bread there's the Passover which is one single day in their religious calendar that single day was then followed by seven days in which they were not to eat anything uh, with leaven and so often the Passover and and the feast of unleavened bread kind of get glommed together there's a beautiful picture the picture is because leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible the picture for us is is that we become uh, saved, so, so to speak, through the Passover lamb, and then now following the, pass, uh, the, the salvation, we are no longer to engage in sin. And, and so here was this thing where God said, all right, I've saved you now, and I don't want le any leaven in any of your houses. The picture for us, it's all a picture of Christ, is now we're saved, but we aren't saved to continue to live the same crummy life we were living before. Now we're to remove, actively be involved in the removal of sin from our lives. We are not the same person that we were before we were saved. So there's a righteousness that God imputes to us, a positional righteousness is, is what it's called, where God looks at me and sees the righteousness of Christ uh, in me because of my faith in Christ. But I don't just look and say, well, God looks at me and he sees the righteousness of Christ. I can live my life any old way that I want. No, I'm, because I am saved now, I'm to live a different kind of life and remove the sin uh, from my life. And so that's, that's what the picture is, a beautiful picture of, of salvation, the completeness of salvation. That's fascinating and really kind of sad, but um, when you go over to Israel and, and, and all, and we were over there right at the time of, of the Passover, 
And, uh, and, and so the hotel that we were staying in and many of the larger hotels, they don't allow any leaven, uh, in, any yeast uh, in, into or ye- products that are made with yeast or leavened bread. Or, so you eat these crackers and stuff uh, in, into the hotel. The hotels have become very concerned about uh, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread to be kosher, that there's no leaven anywhere in the whole hotel. In fact, all of us received a notice on our pillows or in our rooms and it said uh, do not bring any leaven into this hotel as we were approaching uh, the the Passover period they were trying to get the hotel kosher and the reason that they do that is that uh, with the rabbi's approval that uh, many of the Jewish people today instead of cleansing their house of leaven for the seven days in order to keep the feast of unleavened bread they simply check into a hotel that's kosher and unleavened for the seven days and then they go back home afterwards so they kind of work around this whole thing but the imagery isn't just about not having you know wonder bread in your house it's it's a picture of we have been saved now and God has and reinforcing the fact that we are no longer to live the life that we had had uh, uh, once uh, once lived and so that's the imagery that is uh, behind mm, all of it well let's see what do you think the odds are of finishing the book of Exodus tonight. All right. We better stop there at the end of verse 20. And we'll pick it up in verse 21 uh, next time. So hold that thought because I don't want to do a review. That was a lot we said here uh, tonight on things. But we'll just continue to talk about now this great um, uh, Passover and just considering uh, our Passover lamb. Let's stand together. And uh, let's pray together. Worship team, if you come forward, we'll get you to close us up. We'll let them get up here and then we'll pray. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our Passover lamb. I mean, we just think about a lamb, the innocence of a lamb, a life given of an animal for our sin. And I mean, that would be um, humbling enough and uh, sobering enough. But when we think about Jesus dying on that cross, for our sins in order that you might remain just and righteous and at the same time not pour your wrath and your judgment upon our sin we just thank you for the way that you found to save us and to forgive us and not only Lord to have found that way but then to be willing to make the sacrifice that we might be a forgiven and a saved people tonight. Thank you that we will never be judged for our sin. We will never ever taste or experience even the smallest amount 
of your wrath upon our lives for our sin because Jesus bore it all for us upon that cross. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for our salvation tonight. We thank you, Lord, for how rich it is, how deep it is, how high it is. We thank you for what we understood about it when we came to know you. We thank you, Lord, for how we've grown in our understanding of it. And the more we grow, the more in awe we are of how good you have been to us in him. Thank you for our Passover lamb. Thank you for Jesus. And we thank you in his name. Amen.